0: you're listening to napabroadcasting.com welcome back to napabroadcasting.com we are joined once again here in studio by bill chadwick who has been kind enough over the past several months to come by and visit with us and talk a little bit about some of the unique places he's been, about uh, some of the adventures he's undergone, and really put it in a context that has some relevance to all of our lives, even here in the Napa Valley.
1: Bill, thanks so much for coming in. Sure thing, Jeff. Thanks for the invite.
0: I always have to ask you where you've been lately because you uh, you go to the more most exotic places I think of of anybody that I know. Exotic, not necessarily in a in a grand four or five star style, but. certainly places people don't usually go
1: no I um, I'd have to say I end up in some of the some of the not so grand places but uh, they're grand to see and they're grand to experience
0: where have you been lately
1: Uh, spent some time in Belgrade Serbia Uh, was over there in the former Yugoslavia Republic and also in Tbilisi Georgia uh, down at the south end of Russia closest uh, to the Caspian Sea
0: Talk a little bit about your sense of what's going on in Georgia, certainly the sense of what's going on in, in Russia and the former uh, Soviet Union is something that I think is on a lot of people's minds these days.
1: Sure. We know Georgia was Joseph Stalin's uh, birthplace. He was born there, and uh, Georgia was for many years part of the USSR. They broke away. 15 years ago. In fact, uh, Shevardnadze, who had been the, the foreign minister of the USSR, was the president was of Georgia. The first, yeah, he was right. the first president of Georgia. Uh, they've experienced good economic growth uh, for the last 10 or 12 years, but in 2008, due to their um, defense of South Ossetia, one of the provinces, uh, they were invaded by Russia. And um, several thousand people lost their lives. The war only lasted about three or four weeks, but the Russians uh, pummeled. The Georgians pretty well. And and since what happened in the Ukraine, the Georgians are once again uh, concerned about their security. And uh, as it worked out, it was actually some of their cross-border incursions. They were sending special forces north across the Russian border. And after being warned, the Russians retaliated by invading them then. So I've been spending time with the Ministry of Defense there in Georgia trying to help them sort out what some of their security concerns are and how best to defend themselves.
0: And this is part of your work with the Naval, Naval War College, we should That's explain correct. to people. That's correct.
1: That. Yeah, the Naval Postgraduate School down in Monterey is my— employer and I travel on their behest.
0: Mm-hmm. And is there a sense of, of real fear in Georgia at this point that, that a Russian invasion is is possible or likely?
1: Well, you know, everything has to do with Vladimir Putin's uh, outlook on the world, and the Georgians believe very strongly that he, he has a potential for doing it again. Yeah, yeah, they are concerned.
0: It's interesting, the attitudes towards Putin, and I'm curious what the attitudes there are, the attitudes here in, in the U.S., because there really are two extreme schools of thought as, as you read people talking about Putin. There is actually a lot of support for him on the far left among people that think that he's a moderating influence on U.S. imperialism. I mean, I just saw a story about that the other day. And you, you look at the general attitude towards Putin and certainly the views over, over there, and it's a very different view of Putin.
1: I I um I talk to people who who have uh, a different historical perspective about Russia and its history. You know, there uh, Putin is using uh, the theory that everything in that part of the world belongs to Russia and used to be part of the kingdoms that developed in Russia, and um, that's not necessarily held in wide in wide resolve over there right now. There are a lot of people who who think that. Uh, Russia has no business intervening in Ukraine or in Crimea. Um, I I think that uh, Putin Putin's not a statesman. He's a tough guy. I mean, he was a KGB officer right. and just happened to be at the right place at the right time as far as uh, when, when Boris Yeltsin appointed him to some higher positions. I, I don't see him as a moderating factor at all. I, th- I see him as... He's taking advantage of the fear that a lot of Russian people have uh, not only for gays but also for um, for economic stability
0: well the economic stability is a big part of it because a lot of his his overreach is to cover up a lot of what's going on with the oligarchs and a lot of money that's also winding up in his pockets as a result of deals he's cut
1: sure and he's also imprisoned a number of people who were his uh, who who helped him get started and then became his proteges and then have now fallen out of favor several of whom have been assassinated or died under mysterious right. circumstances
0: including recently that's right one one of his opponents there has to be a certain palpable fear over there
1: there is there certainly is in Georgia and uh, they're putting the best face on it they're really trying to focus on developing economic capability in in uh, in Georgia but you don't have to look very far east. Uh, the problems that are hap- that are occurring just in the next country over, uh, Azerbaijan, and uh, in in that area, Armenia. There, I, I I would suspect in the near future, probably within the next six months, there'll be a conflict there between those two those two factions too, Armenians and Azerbaijanis.
0: It's interesting, you and I were talking before we went on the air about the fact that, that all these things go on around the world and there's potential conflicts, potential tinder spots all over the world. And sometimes that we, we lose sight of that. We get very isolated here in our own bubble and, and forget that the world is often a dangerous place.
1: Not only is it dangerous, it's just not well portrayed. We We don't get all the story here in America. We get what fits inside a soundbite or we get what fits inside... You know, five paragraphs, double-spaced, 12-point font sometimes, too. What,
0: what is the danger, in your view, from that? The danger of a public being, I won't say misinformed, but under-informed?
1: Well, I think the fear is that you, uh, you can be led to believe certain things. Uh, whether you believe uh, Benjamin Netanyahu coming and speaking to a, to a joint session of Congress is a good thing or a bad thing, um, we certainly get one perspective on it, and that's from the media. And I don't know if that's the truth or not. I don't. I don't know if it was a good idea that he came without an invitation from our president. Um, but I certainly get a lot of opinions from the media about it. Well,
0: it's interesting. Actually, the real interesting thing there would be something is is really reading the Israeli media, which is very diverse and pretty argumentative among itself. Sure
1: and and also at the same time you know the media in Israel also uh, has a habit or, or I guess it's their policy to strip out political items that come out in official uh, channels if it's if it's uh, if it's electioneering, if it's propaganda right. put out by a political party, it's not allowed in in news reporting so sometimes we get official uh, pieces of information that may or may not be, well, sometimes the press
0: releases are just printed in whole as a story. Here. Exactly,
1: exactly. But, but but I have to say, I mean, I, I dealt with the Israeli Defense Force a lot through the years, uh, in my experience in special operations, and and I have to say, I sometimes I would be talking to a major in the army, and then later on he'd be the vice president of a technology company. Uh, there, you know, those those two industries are are really uh, joined at the hip. In Israel, and I don't know what the rest of the government's like or the rest of the economy, but but certainly, in the case of military equipment and military capability, it was hard to tell the IDF from from uh, some of the some of the aerospace companies.
0: Well, that that's the real military industrial complex. There. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Not that we don't scale. have one here. <laughs> well,
1: we do, but we just make people take their uniform off. <laughs> right there, they don't
0: even bother to go,
1: go through the charade.
0: Well, I mean, and that is. A reality. I mean, I know from a business perspective of of doing business in other parts of the world. You know, we want to take American values there. Can't bribe officials, and there you are know, all the, all these rules and regulations for Americans doing business abroad, which puts Americans at a disadvantage sometimes.
1: Well, a lot of the rules that we set for ourselves are are sometimes bastardized around the world. I never will forget the week after Abu Ghraib came out uh, in, in during the Iraq War. And I was teaching, I happened to be teaching a, a seminar on ethics, and uh, the chief of police of Sri Lanka walked up to me during the break, and he said, you know, Bill, I never would have thought that you guys would have done this. He says, you know, I've, I've used torture, and I've, and I've used some inappropriate methods of interrogation uh, on the Tamil Tigers, but I never thought you Americans would do that. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really disappointing day for me to be an American.
0: Talk about the experience for you, that w- what would seem like the kind of cognitive dissonance that goes on, one, being out there in the world, being in places like some of the places you've been, and and seeing a very different worldview than one sees back here in the North Bay or in Napa or anywhere else in the Bay Area. It's a, it's a disconnect in some ways.
1: Well, it's a disconnect, I think. Uh probably in two in two specific perspectives for me. One is what our values are. Do we value human life? There are countries that I've been in, involved in. I, w- I was involved in the Civil War in El Salvador where, you know, the the Salvadoran uh, Officer Corps used privates uh, for, for pretty dangerous things, uh, something we would never do with an American soldier. It was commonplace. Uh, their mind detection, you know, just uh, the value of human life is not... Is not what we ordinarily uh, consider here in America. The number two thing is that um, what's important, you know, what what really is important here in America uh, doesn't always carry in, in other countries. There are people – I have friends in, in other countries who make fun of us because we focus on the Kardashians and what they're doing mm-hmm. with their everyday life. You know, the reality shows on TV don't hold up. Um, they're, they're strictly for entertainment purposes, not for – not, not to you know create a a, a culture uh, like we do here in America.
0: Well, I mean, you look at some of these situations. I mean, even in Georgia, and you know Putin's opponents and and what goes on, and the real life danger that that people experience. And you come back here, and people are passionate and debating whether or not there should be another winery in their neighborhood, or whether there should be an extra event or not. I mean, it really puts things in a very different perspective.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, look at the headline today in the Napa Register. Where's the moose going to be right. <laughs> be commemorated? And thank goodness Gordon Huther's involved, because I was concerned that w- it wasn't, that? That wasn't going to be done you know, in an appropriate way. So good for Gordon. Uh, no, you're absolutely right, Jeff. Uh, the things that we consider important, uh, everyday life in the Congo, which is where I'm leaving for tomorrow mm-hmm. morning, uh, revolves around trying to find enough to eat. Uh, and trying to be safe. I mean, there are nonprofits here in Napa who do great work, uh, and it's a very simple mission. Just providing panties for girls in Africa is a big deal. You know, the fact that they don't have underwear uh, prevents – the fact that they do have underwear just, you know, is a big deal. It it prevents uh, inappropriate behavior on the part of men. Uh, You wouldn't think that was important, you know. Mosquito nets, providing protection against uh, – mosquito bites is a big deal. I mean, we're talking about really simple things.
0: What's happening in the Congo? What are you going there for?
1: Um, Once again, the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, the the 15th or 16th largest country in the world, it's the size of the eastern United States and about 15 million people. There's no roads across the country. We're trying to figure out how to logistically support the, the, the Congolese military out in the very east of the country uh, closest to Rwanda and Uganda, where the armed militia, and there's about, there are probably 16 or 17 different uh, armed groups that are all fighting out there in that area for control of mining. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, natural resources, uh, bauxite, aluminum products, you know, the the components for aluminum. Uh, diamonds. Diamonds are a big deal in, in the eastern Congo, too. And I'm trying to help them figure out how to, how to support themselves logistically for the military.
0: Why do we, the U.S., why, do we, why does the, the government, the military, get involved
1: in those missions?
0: I mean, there's a lot of people that would say, and some of them even people that are running for president, well, you know, it's not our business. Why should we get involved?
1: It's uh, a great question, Jeff. I'm, in fact, I'm married to a person who asked that question on a routine basis. Why do we, why do we go there? Why do we support them? Because Joseph Kabila, uh, who is the son of Laurent Kabila, uh, his father was assassinated. He took power. Uh, he's been the president for quite some time. Um, It's because we, Americans, the State Department, Department of Defense, we believe we can make a difference. We believe we can influence their behavior by being there with them on a day-to-day basis. We can inculcate, you know, infuse some sense of, of proper ethical professional behavior and make professional their armed forces.
0: Isn't that nation building though? Is that some that's something we've proved to be not terribly good at?
1: We're not terribly good at it, but it doesn't mean we 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 stop doing or trying and and uh, continue to, to to pursue it. I mean, look at a Secretary of State right now. He's been he's been trying to negotiate with the Iranians over their nuclear capability for quite some time. We don't stop. We don't disengage. Um, I've been doing this for forty five years. Um, I've had I've had great successes. I mean. Uh, I consider El Salvador, what we did there in a 14-year civil war was to create a market-based economy, free elections. Now, the fact they've got a serious gang problem doesn't mean that we weren't successful in, in, the, in adjusting their sense of what's right and wrong with the armed militias uh, that were operating in the FMLN and other, and other armed bands in El Salvador. But, uh, you know, I can, I can name four or five situations like that in Latin America where we were successful.
0: One of the things, it seems, that these situations all require is, is sort of a suspension of, of seeing things in black and white, that you go into these countries, you go into situations like El Salvador or any of the things you're talking about, and it's not clear-cut always who the good guys and who the bad guys are. We tend to like that. We, we always like it very simple.
1: We absolutely do. Uh, you know, we were talking before, uh, we went on the air Americans really do like to see four quarters of play. They they want to look up on the on the scoreboard and see who's winning, and that's not the way the rest of the world is. I have a, I have a dear friend whose father was in Laos in the nineteen fifties. He was an army officer. He'd fought in World War II, and he pointed out to State Department. He said, "These are the people that we need to be supporting in Laos." Well, we didn't go that way, and. You know, worse for the wear. Uh, years later, we we failed in, in Laos. We failed in other parts of Southeast Asia. The people on the ground got the best, really have the best, uh, you know, prognosis of of what the best policies are. And we don't always trust we don't always trust our our military guys on the ground. I think that's one of the problems we had in in the in the Arab world is we never had advisors. We never had people involved on a, on a day-to-day basis with a lot of the militaries and a lot of the people on the ground in places like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq. Um, I had classmates in my officer advance course who were Iranian officers who left to go back and they were, uh, most of them were executed uh, by, by the Iranians when they overthrew the, the Shah. Uh, one of my first jobs in special forces was to protect the Shah of Iran when he came to down to Panama. And, I mean, I, I, I had a lot of, I had a lot of uh, heart-to-heart talks with my Special Forces soldiers about that. Can we really make a difference? Are we doing the right thing? Uh, I think, by and large, we do. But, uh, but like you say, it's a hard question. I, I don't always come up with great answers. Uh, but I know on a day-to-day basis I, I influence young captains in the Congo, who are in my classes, I mean, I'm able to get them involved in the discussion. And they don't always agree with their colonels, either. That's hmm. that's one of the most important things, is I'm seeing young captains and majors disagreeing with their, with their elders on things.
0: Mm-hmm. When you look at all this and what we accomplish, and, and you put it in the context of the Middle East, for example, I mean, wasn't that the idea of some of these counterinsurgency programs, that it was supposed to do that, get among the people and sort and of figure out who the right people were on the ground? That didn't work out very well in most cases. It helped a little, but not over yeah, the long it, run. Yeah, it,
1: it helped a little, and it's and it's helping still. I mean, I've uh, you know the Department of Defense has started to shift their focus, move a little further east. I mean, I've been spending time in Dushanbe, Tajikistan. I'm headed to Uzbekistan later on in the year. Uh, we're trying we're trying to influence the action. We're trying to focus on the right places at the right time.
0: How do we know how much does it require in terms of, of intelligence to understand who the right people are and what's really going on on the ground?
1: Well, part of what I do is I, I try and talk to my, uh, my colleagues and <clears throat> some of the folks that I know from other parts of the government before I take off or somewhere so that I have a good lay of the land. I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of talking so that when I land somewhere, I've I've got a, I've got a fairly good sense of, of what to expect but then I search out people. I mean, I've spent time with the with the AID director in Kinshasa, in the Congo, uh, Dr. Diane Putn- uh, Putnam. She's uh, she's working with two hundred fifty three million dollars in in AID money to help uh, the Congo with their medical uh, research and medical situations, to inoculate children, to prevent uh, the spread of disease. I think I get a pretty good sense of what's going on when I. Before and and during my trips, Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, I guess the the other part of the question we talked before about whether it's something that that we should be doing. The other part of the question is who should be doing it. Is this something that should be an adjunct of the military? Should there be outside agencies? Should there be nonprofits? Who should be doing it?
1: Well, that that, that's another great point. Uh, You know, Hillary Clinton thought when she was Secretary of State that that she was really getting uh, overrun by some of the Department of Defense agencies and and forces that were coming into parts of the world that she she saw as her own uh, portfolio. I know the Special Operations Commander, the four-star down there, the admiral. Uh, Bill McRaven, he he was he was seeing the spread of capability for the military to to in fact do some of what you're describing, nation building, uh, democracy mm-hmm. support, infrastructure, uh, building integrity. I mean, part of what I do when I travel is is to support State Department programs like building integrity in the procurement and acquisition system. You know how you contract for services in a foreign country should be transparent. There are countries I go to where you can't even look online. There's no electronic uh, procurement system. You can't tell what what uh, what contracts they're putting out for bid, what requests for proposals they're they're proposing. They they classify secret everything, like the food mm-hmm. that a soldier eats on a daily basis. I mean that's inappropriate. You ought to be putting that out for everybody to see. So yeah, I think agencies, I think departments in the federal government. Uh, get a little confused and overstep their bounds. But I think that's, you know, that's why we have secretaries and heads of departments is to sort out whose responsibilities are who. I, I feel very comfortable. I, I know a lot about the way State Department operates. I've been, I've been around it for 40 years now, and uh, I see myself as, a, as, a, as an ambassador at a very low level, but I have a capability to spread the word about U.S. foreign policy.
0: How do NGOs fit into this equation, especially the big ones?
1: The NGOs fit in very, very effectively. I, um, I try, and, um, I try and, and connect with NGOs with, and also with private volunteer organizations when I, when I go overseas. I was one of the champions in El Salvador as an advisor to their military. Whenever I would come in contact with somebody from, from one of the, the NGOs or PVOs there uh, that were trying to help the, the poor, uh, I would encourage the brigade commander, the Salvadoran brigade commander, to, to let them, you know, to give them access to the military zone, even if it was a combat zone. I, I didn't uh, I didn't want to deny them. Uh, and we saw Seventh Day Adventists, uh, we saw the Mormon Church, um, lots of lots of religious organizations, and and, uh, and some of the larger uh, Feed the Children agencies uh, working. And,
0: and what role, you know, we've talked about the military and, and NGOs, what role, if any, does the UN have in all of this?
1: Well, the, the United Nations uh, has had not a particularly good reputation in Central Africa. I mean, one of the problems we had early on was uh, one of the battalions that the United Nations put in the Congo uh, was actually accused of, uh, of torture and uh, raping and pillaging. And that was one of the problems they had. Uh, they tried to infiltrate the, the Democratic Republic of Congo military with, with armed bands with some of the former uh, militias that they were fighting against. They incorporated the troops into their ranks, and they were trained by United Nations forces. They didn't do a very good job of inculcating some sense of uh, decency and ethical behavior, and they got a black eye for that. And that's one of the reasons United Nations pulled out. And now uh, the United Nations is trying to encourage the U.S. to fill that spot. There are U.S. special forces on the ground in the northeast part of the country that are that are, in fact, uh, you know, conducting combat operations against um, some of the armed bands. Not Boko Haram. I mean, they're further north, mm-hmm. but, but some of the other um, Al shabaab is operating in the area too. So,
0: the other thing, in, staying on Africa for the moment, the other influence that is becoming more powerful there is the Chinese influence. I Absolutely, mean, there's more and more Chinese money coming in. Chinese advisors, Chinese mostly to, to access natural resources, but it has other components that come along with it.
1: The Chinese stay at the hotel where I do, uh, when I go to Kinshasa, and they, have, uh, they had a lot more money to spend. They were offering a lot more in support. Uh, I've noticed uh, the last couple times I've been there, not so much, and I'm not hearing as much. They still they have inferior military gear. Uh, and the Congolese really don't want to buy anything from them for military purpose but they're certainly interested in some of their building products and in electronic gear
0: mm-hmm. why less money do you think what, what is your sense of that I, I
1: think the Chinese are having problems in their, their own, own economy economic yeah issues, I think right. they've I think they've had to had to relook their their foreign expenditures
0: interesting stuff talk a little bit about uh, going into Serbia and what you saw there
1: well, you know, uh, Belgrade is probably uh, – in the last five years, I've, I've been working with the, uh, with the Serbian military uh, f- for quite a, quite a long period of time. And they – you know, Yugoslavia was where most of the military equipment, the, the vehicles, uh, armored vehicles, tanks, artillery pieces, m- most of that equipment was built for the USSR was, was right there in, in and around Belgrade. There are 13 or 14 uh, warm facilities, actual industrial facilities, that are continuing to to um, to operate. Uh, what they're doing now is f- reuse uh, of facilities to build commercial products, to, hmm. to build tractors, uh, commercial aircraft. Some of the other uses for these uh, for these facilities. Tito did a really good job as the as the um, the leader of Yugoslavia, and first of all. Keeping the country cohesive and, and holding them together, part of it, you know, with an iron will, but also because he made it economically uh, attractive to keep them together. With the breakup of, of Yugoslavia, now Serbia really holds most of the cards for the economic um, right. piece of that. Not so much Bosnia or Croatia um, or Herzegovina or Montenegro, but uh, it's a beautiful country. I the people are very friendly. Um, I read recently that Serbs have uh one of the lowest incidents though of uh they, they're the least happy people uh, in Eastern hmm. Europe. They're considered not very happy, but I've not seen that to be the case. They they strike me as as pretty happy people.
0: And the economy has has, has gotten along. I mean, yes. the economy's doing reasonably well there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 2 to 3% growth every year. And you're living on the Danube, so
0: When you go into these places as an advisor and and, and trying to help in the ways that we've been talking about, how receptive are they to this?
1: Well, every country sees that if they are receptive, that it will probably improve their chances of getting uh, additional foreign military sales funding, Mm -hmm. Uh, because what we do is we give them money. You know, the U.S.— Government gives foreign governments money with which they purchase equipment from us. I mean, that's what foreign military sales is all about. They also we also support them uh, in making decisions about direct commercial sales. Uh, they buy countries buy directly from Lockheed Martin or from Groman. They they actually buy equipment from uh, the defense um, contractors and. I don't make I don't make recommendations about which company to buy from, but I, I make very clear distinction and suggestions, recommendations about what their requirements ought to be. I, I make suggestions about, well, if you're you know, if you're gonna buy a helicopter, what do you want the helicopter to be able to do? Not necessarily which which vendor to, to buy from. So they appreciate our expertise. They know that uh, receiving us and and listening to us is attached to dollars. That the U.S. government's going to going to either loan or give to them, um, so I I I've never not been uh, uh, you know greeted. Uh, I wouldn't say open arms necessarily, but but they are certainly receptive to our message. Yeah.
0: Do we get too carried away with democracy promotion in some of these efforts?
1: I you know I I've I've never been accused of uh, of of. of extolling the virtues of democracy as much as I, I like to talk about what's pragmatic. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, my my philosophy instructor at West Point, uh, Wes Clark, accused me one day. He said, you know, uh, he says, I keep trying to teach you philosophy, and all you want to talk about is pragmatism. Uh, I don't um, – I, I want to focus on what works and, and what, what moves them forward in their military planning and uh, support for whatever national aims they have. Mm-hmm. I really do encourage them, though, to, to do thinking around looking at what works.
0: How much freedom, how much flexibility do you and your colleagues have in doing that? How much of it is top-down in terms of what your mission is, and how much freedom do you have on the ground?
1: Oh, I have complete freedom, Jeff. I, I get an opportunity to interact with—I uh, normally go into a country, and I have, a, I have an office call or an interview with the, with the senior general— Who's running the, the department or, or the the piece of the the military that we're working with, uh, and that that's been the case everywhere from from Cairo, Egypt, out to Tajikistan. We have an initial uh, office call. We do some planning and thinking. I I propose what we're what we're going to do, and I either get some stick and rudder from the general. Uh, usually they they accept whatever I'm proposing to do, and I and it's and it's open it's open discussion. I use lectures. Uh, I have materials uh, that I send ahead, readings that are translated in, into mm-hmm. the language if it's not going to be English. Uh, you know, in some countries, the officers in Jordan all are required by the king to speak English. So we always conduct our classes there in in English. But in other countries, uh, for example, next Monday, uh, I'll have a translator translating into French in the Congo. Uh, some countries, Russian, depends.
0: And you're in these countries for a relatively short period of time. Yeah talk about that in in terms of what can be accomplished in in such a short period?
1: Well, uh, obviously, we hit the high points of lecture series. They're either one- or two-week engagements. Uh, I might have a discussion about how you write a requirement document describing what capability you want the military to be able to accomplish, like uh, have a a wheeled vehicle that will carry, you know, 25 soldiers uh, over a certain kind of terrain. We'll write a requirement, and then we, we actually run them through an exercise. They'll have a case study. I'll set them in a notional country. I'll set the stage by describing what, you know, what their neighbors are doing, who's friendly, who's, who's, um, who's hostile, and they'll have to come up with a scenario to describe how, to, how that requirement would, in fact, move through the process all the way to procurement.
0: Mm-hmm. When you go back to some of these places, maybe years, months later, maybe years later, Talk a little bit about what you see in terms of whether this this works, whether it takes hold, and how long it takes.
1: Well, I start. I usually start off, uh, and, and I'll do this on Monday morning uh, with with the senior staff. I'll say, "What have you done since we were here last? Um, how have you used what we talked about to in your everyday in your everyday life?" And I'll I'll go around the room. There'll be you know seventeen or eighteen people in the room, and I'll ask each one of them. And and they I've done this enough times now. This will be my fourth time back. They know to expect it. They know that that Professor Chad was going to ask them on Monday to talk about how they use what we what we covered last time. So um, and you know you get a lot of information on breaks. Uh, I'll hang around after class is over at three o'clock in the afternoon. That's another thing. Most countries don't work like we do. I mean we start at nine and and end at three. Uh, we don't work through lunch. You know we have a we have a, a lunch break. Americans, awfully leisurely. <laughs> well, you know, Americans are fascinated by working uh, uh, 10 or 12 hours a day. And I just, that, we're the only country that does that.
0: Do you ever get tired of it? Do you ever find uh, th- that you want to stop doing it?
1: Sure. Every trip. I'm, um, you know, I'm getting to the age now, Jeff, where travel can be physically right. uh, debilitating. And uh, I'll be on a flight from here to Washington in the morning and then Washington to Brussels. And that's only two thirds of the way. I've still got an eight-hour flight from Brussels down to Kinshasa. So I'll get in. You know, I'll leave tomorrow morning at eight thirty. I'll get in late Saturday evening, but have Sunday to recover. And I'll I'll get out in the fresh air on Saturday night. Make sure I take advantage of of getting that climate into my lungs. Uh, but yeah, it gets it gets tiring sometimes,
0: especially on these shorter missions. I mean, when sure. you're only there a week, ten days, or whatever, it's a pretty quick turnaround. Right faster planes that's
1: faster planes and in fact we're headed that way right we're going to hopefully we'll have airplanes that'll get us across country in an hour and 32 minutes
0: i can't wait yeah i'm sure either. you
1: can't wait maybe i'll be retired before that
0: bill chadwick i thank you so much for coming in and sharing with us appreciate it thanks jeff thank you napabroadcasting.com controversy fun and conversation all the things that radio used to be